This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week our focus returns to Central America and Mexico. We'll have an in-depth examination of the presidential race in Mexico and an analysis of the drug war from the front lines. But first, Vanessa Jesus Gonzati joins us for our weekly roundup of news from around Latin America. Ecuadorian President Rafael Correa is pardoning the main opposition newspaper in an ongoing libel case. With this action, Correa relieves four employees of El Universo newspaper with potential prison time and a $42 million fine. I have decided to ratify something that had been decided in my heart a while back. But I also decided with family and friends to forgive the accused, giving the remission of charges that they deserved, including the company El Universo. The government had accused them of criminal libel against Correa, and the case would have been decided at the end of March. The legal attack on El Universo brought up concerns from international press freedom and human rights groups. Correa said in a televised speech that he forgave the three-year prison term they would have to serve if they lost. Colombia's main rebel group, the FARC, promises it's going to stop kidnapping civilians for financial ends. The leftist Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia announced on its website that it will soon free its last prisoners of war, as they call them, 10 security force members held for 14 years. It would be the first time that the rebel group would stop abducting civilians, both Colombian and foreign. But the FARC has not said that it would abandon violence altogether, and there is no official figure on how many civilians are currently held. Analysts say that FARC revenues from ransom kidnappings now represent only a fraction of income for a group that makes most of its money from the cocaine trade. The government says they will wait for actions before agreeing to peace talks. Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez broadcast via telephone for the first time after having surgery in Cuba. He contacted his country's state media on Thursday after almost a week since he left Venezuela. He says he's in good shape and in the process of recovering from surgery. I am very happy. I am very well. I'm recuperating quickly. There has been no word on whether the lesion was related to the cancer that he suffered last year. There has been controversy over Chavez's health since the exact nature and location of the cancer has never been released. A federal immigration judge ruled that the former defense minister of El Salvador can be deported from the U.S. for his role in killings and human rights abuses in the 1980s. It is the first time that a law passed in 2004 meant to stop human rights abusers from taking refuge in the U.S. has been successfully used against the country's top military official. Judge James Grimm, based in Orlando, found General Eugenio Vidas Casanova can be deported for the torture of Salvadoran citizens and the 1980 and 81 killings of six Americans and a Salvadoran. The decision on whether Vidas Casanova will actually be deported will happen later, but the ruling makes him eligible to be taken out of the United States. Attorneys from the Center for Justice and Accountability say other Salvadoran officials from that area that live in the U.S. could potentially be sought for deportations for similar abuses. This is Vanessa Jesus Gonzari reporting for Latin Pulse. 
Thanks, Vanessa. Last month, while this program focused on Guatemala and musical culture in Latin America, political parties in Mexico lined up their slate of candidates to run in a presidential race this summer. Running for Mexico's PAN, the Conservative Party, is Josefina Vasquez Mota, the first woman to head the ticket for a major Mexican party. On the left, running for Mexico's PRD, Manuel Lopez Obrador, and the frontrunner, Enrique Pena Nieto of the PRI. Joining us once again to discuss Mexico is economist and political expert Manuel Suarez Meyer of American University. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Thank you very much, Rick. Before we dive into the presidential race in Mexico, perhaps it's best to explain the PRI, the PRI, Mexico's Institutional Revolutionary Party. I think for those in the United States, we have trouble grasping exactly what this party is about because it defies a neat ideological definition. So can you help us with that a little bit? Sure. How many hours do I have? <laughs> because yes, I know whole books have been written about this. This is this is the whole, the, 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 one of the most elusive uh, definitions that you can get. First of all, the PRI is not a political party. The PRI was conceived as a, as a electoral machine by a fascist government, a corporatist government, that, by the way, was inspired very much by what uh, Mussolini was doing in Italy in the times of uh, General uh, Plutarco Elias Calles, when he was not president between 1920 and 24, he was president in waiting, let's say, he went to Italy and got the blueprints of a system that would allow Mexico to go from one generation to the next we have without having to kill each other to to succeed power and uh, without having to have a dictatorship so that's how the the pri was invented with a different name uh at the the end of the, the end of the 20s at the end of the uh, violent phase of the mexican revolution and the idea was that you create this electoral machine controlled completely by the president and um, what's the ideology? Whatever the president, the incoming president brings. So you've had a PRI that was very much to the left, uh, forcing socialist education on children in the Cardenas years, 1934, 1940. That would be also the land reform years, though, too. That was the, the one of the fastest phases of the land reform. But, but, but the land reform continued for many years. Um, distributing land that was increasingly useless. Um, but then the PRI uh, went to the center with presidents uh, in the middle 50s and then to the liberal uh, right, if you wish, with President Salinas in 1988-1994. So it's a party of all seasons, depending on what ideology you want to uh, to put into it. I guess today you had described it early in that answer as being corporatist. Uh, we we might say corporatist centrist, um, still somewhat dependent on who's heading the party. Absolutely. Now, since it lost the election, this was not a party designed to lose elections. It was a political machine designed to win all elections. So when it, it lost the election in 2000, many of us thought, okay, they are going to reconsider, redefine themselves, Re look for a phoenix act of coming out in a new shape and form but somehow they didn't do that and the, the PRI went into a terrible defeat in 2006 because among all other things chose a terrible candidate 
And um, but since then has consolidated, has won many local and state elections, and they are ready to come back uh, in the presidential one. Pena is leading in the polls. He's young. He's telegenic. How can he lose? Well, if he opens his mouth unscripted, as he did in uh, the uh, book fair in Guadalajara, uh, this is this is so dumb. How many candidates for any office, uh, even you know, your high school chairman, uh, don't are not prepared to ask to answer the simple question: What are your three favorite books? And he couldn't answer. He couldn't. He he went for the Bible, after procrastinating a little bit, and then he confused the other two books and authors and so on. He made a mess. Um, so he is not good on his feet when unscripted. I've met him twice, and he gave me a very good impression on a one-on-one or one and very few basis. And he listens and he he makes sense what he says and so on and so forth. But he has to be very careful on that because uh, he's, according to the latest polls, still ranking 45, 50% of the preferences, at least 20 points ahead of Josefina Vasquez Mota. Uh, But he can lose that if he's not careful. The word is that she's coming up in the polls, that she's reducing his lead. That's true. And that was to be expected because, among other reasons, the new electoral law that was passed in uh, 2007 is a complete disaster. It's so confusing, and uh, it has shortened the times of the campaigns, and it has put put all sorts of bans of what the candidates can say and when they can say it, and so on and so forth. Uh, this was a dreadful law. But um, in many respects, uh, the ones that had a contest until uh, contest until the end were the three precandidates of the pan. So that made possible for them to be out there in, in the media, while the other two were already chosen by their uh, coalitions or parties and uh, had to be hidden away because they cannot, they couldn't do a campaign. So Josefina had been uh, in the headlines every day uh, fighting with her two other opponents from the, uh, for the uh, nomination of the PAN. Um, and eventually she was more in the news, and she's, she's been uh, very good, non-controversial. Uh, she has not expressed any idea whatsoever, but she has smiled a lot. So that has pushed her up, but we have to see how, how far that goes. So the question then, I think, that follows that is by putting her forward, by putting Vasquez forward, um, has the pond taken a calculated risk? Um, to try to energize its base and voters in Mexico because we've had these two panista, two conservative presidencies back-to-back, and some people would say that the current presidency hasn't exactly been a success. Well, it, it has not in many respects, but particularly in, in the front of um, um, public insecurity. We, more than 50,000 Mexicans have died in the last five years uh, or so fighting this war against drugs. So there is a great deal of discontent de- regarding that. Uh, Josefina has yet to make a clean break with those policies and to outline what she would do uh, on her own. But be- beware. The only political party in Mexico that really selects 
a, a candidate is the PAN. And the PAN was elect, selected, Josefina, against the wishes of President Calderón and his, uh, and his uh, clique of friends who were rooting for the former finance minister, Ernesto Cordero. So she won very much herself. Uh, it was not the party that picked her. It was the base of the party that picked her, which poses some other problems because uh, she's not necessarily in sync with the leadership of the party. So we'll have to see how, the vero the, how, what, how that plays out in the campaign and if there's a dynamic that helps her or not so much. The question then is, are the Panista leaders mature enough to set those differences aside to win the election? It's unclear yet, because at the moment they are selecting candidates for, for senators and congressmen. And the really embarrassing part of all of this for my beloved country is that the three parties have selected the worst possible candidates. Why? Because they bring money. Uh, they are giving them uh, coverage, political coverage, by giving them fuero, which is... Uh, once you are elected senator or congressman, the law cannot go after you, even if you committed crimes. And many of these guys are not very good. So all all of the three parties or the three coalitions uh, have selected some very questionable people. And the parties are not happy. I mean, the uh, rank and base of each of the three parties are not happy. So we, we, we don't know where that's going. That's not helping the campaigns of the of the candidates. But the official campaigns don't remember that they don't begin until March the 1st. Well, that's that's right now. That's this week. And so we'll, we'll see how they go forward. We haven't talked at all really about Manuel Lopez Obrador of the left of the PRD. Um, he's basically been running for office since the last election. So for most of the past six years, he's been running. Does he have a chance at all? Um, fortunately, not. He's stuck at 20, 20%. 18%, and he, he's becoming the laughing stock of the political world. He's been announcing his cabinet as he goes along. And the average age of his cabinet members is about 72. So how can you win an election when uh, you have a, a vibrant and very strong youth movement with basically old foggies? This is pathetic. So he has not been, his, his speech about being the party of love and so on is not, is not uh, um, attracting many uh, followers. So he's stuck down there. There's no way for him then to appeal to the center um, because he's been running basically for six years. Is this part of the reason only the hardcore left are going to vote for him? Well, he has seduced some, some businessmen and... Um, some businessmen in, in uh, Monterrey and other areas who are rooting for him and gathering uh, or trying to gather um, businessmen support for him, I don't think they are going to succeed. So my impression is that he's stuck. And the, the, very, the new law that was inspired in what he was uh, trying to push um, makes it very difficult to catch up with such a big difference. He's more than, than 35, 40 points behind. In our short time, what should we look for in this new campaign that really launches this week for who will win? The pre's far ahead. Is there any way for anyone to catch up? It's going to be difficult with a new law, but um, uh, I think that Josefina has a very good chance if he 
puts a coherent program together that that and she she's a good salesperson. So if she puts a, a convincing plan and um, confronts it to a Peña Nieto who's sort of cruising on his good looks and telegenic qualities and not saying anything of substance at all. So I think that you can still, this is an election still very much that can be won by anyone of the two leading parties. So between now and July, we have to look for substance. Absolutely. Manuel Suarez-Meyer of American University, thank you again for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. Thank you very much. I want to finish and then go to to be able to and have my parents couldn't have. I'll even make because I know it's the best thing I can do for my I want to finish school and then go to college to be able to graduate and have the future my parents couldn't have. I'll even make sacrifices because I know that going to college is the best thing I can do for my future. It takes the words of a parent to build the future of a child. The Hispanic Scholarship Fund has the tools and information to help your kids go to college. It's free and it's available in Spanish. Remember, their tomorrow depends on your words today. Visit yourwordstoday.org or call 1-877-HSF-8711. Sponsored by the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Stephen Dudley, investigative reporter and editor of InsideCrime.org, is back with us this week, discussing his views on the impact of the drug war on Central America. Here are excerpts from our pre-recorded interview. Well, I mean, the thing about um, Central America um, is is that it's 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 sandwiched. It's sandwiched between the major production company, countries. And the the border nation that is supplying the United States with most of their illegal narcotics, um, and aside from that, it is it has a long history of of instability, um, a long history of corruption, um, and long histories of of having um, I, very very weak central governments um, that have not been able to properly uh, handle security threats. So the, the recipe or the table, if you will, was, was set for where we are today, where you have um, countries such as Honduras and, and Guatemala in particular that are facing challenges um, from large, sophisticated, organized criminal groups that have an incredible, that can marshal an incredible amount of resources that can penetrate the state at the highest levels and that can really cause uh, instability on, on all fronts, um, on, on both the, the sort of security front um, and, and also the, the, just, just the side of, of, of government that, that maybe we, we don't think about as much but that is like just as important, which is the, the whole the whole idea of the, the the sort of socioeconomic or you know progressive front that would be the the front that you would hope would create the stability in these countries over time. I'm talking about education and health services. All the since all the resources are drained away from these um, these projects, then you're you're not moving any closer to um, you know sort of resolving the long term. 
uh, problem. Um, these challenges force these governments um, into very difficult positions, and they have to make very difficult choices. And on the whole, what we see is that the choices they make um, often end up strengthening one side of their battle against these organized criminal groups that have developed in these nations, and and leaving aside another very important component of these uh, of the battle against them. And so the, the there's a short-term solution, which is I'm going to beef up my security forces. Um, I'm going to strengthen my laws so that I can do uh, massive sweeps and bring in loads of suspected gang members and jail them. Um, I'm going to create a number of special units um, with uh, helicopters and whatnot so that I can interdict uh, narcotics coming into my country. But at the same time, there isn't as much emphasis or effort or resources being put towards the creation of, you know, infrastructure and roads and, and those sort of creating economic opportunities, for example, or, or the creation of, of, you know, or strengthening of the educational system. Or, or the bolstering of the health care services. You know, you, you have sort of everything is put towards one side because you have a problem that is in your face and that is challenge you, challenging you and your government. So you deal with that, but you are not creating the, 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 you're not putting in place all the pieces you need in order to create a long-term solution. Let me clarify, if I may, what you're saying here, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that to combat drug war corruption and what happens with corrupt societies, not just in Central America, but in Mexico and in other parts of Latin America, you have to provide other outlets and other resources for those societies. Otherwise, it's very easy for people to be tempted by the amounts of money that are involved when drug cartels start to do business. Absolutely. I mean, in a nutshell, it's exactly that. You 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 are you are bolstering the sort of security side and and certainly you you need to bolster the security side i'm not arguing against that but you are leaving aside a uh, a critical component of of eliminating what is essentially the the labor for these large criminal organizations um and and that is you're not creating a situation in which um people have opportunity people have the ability to um, you know, go to school or find a job or create a business. Um, and that's and that's really what you need over the long term in order to combat these organizations. Usually when we talk about the drug war, we don't tend to talk about it in that sort of dimension. I'm wondering, since you brought up these, these policies, these legal policies that governments have put into place, um, certainly we've seen that happen in Honduras. Uh, the new president of Guatemala has talked about his mano duro policy, and he intends to strengthen laws that are already, some people would say, um, intervene into society in ways that are chilling uh, for the state to be doing. So what, what's your take on those policies? Is, um, are they so one-dimensional that, that in effect, they, they can't penetrate the longer parts of this war? Well, they're, they're, they're responding to um, um, a need and, and, and one understands that because the threat is real and the threat is present and the threat falls on the pages of the newspapers. And, you know, just to go back to the Guatemala example, for instance, you know, you've had um, wholesale massacres of, you know, 10 and more people in a few different instances. And those are real. You know, those are really happening. You've got, 
you know, you've got Honduras, for example, that has, you know, the highest murder rate in the world of a country that is not at war. Um, We're talking about a murder rate that is four times the murder rate of Mexico, which obviously gets a lot more attention. So those those challenges are real, and, and, and you can understand why the response would be, I'm going to bolster my security forces, or I'm going to create a mano dura, you know, a, a, a hard, hard-line stance against this. Um, but, but you have to have uh, these other programs, and, and they're not all just socioeconomic programs. You have to be simultaneously bolstering your legal system. You know, you have to be creating a judicial system that is strong and and is able to uh, deal with these cases and able to prosecute these cases in country. Um, you know, you, you, you there, 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 for example, there was a case, uh, a very important case in Guatemala, which was against an ex-president. Um, he, um, it was uh, Afonso Portillo. And he and um, several of his uh, cohorts in government were, were charged with embezzlement. Uh, amongst other crimes, and and the case went to trial, um, and it was considered sort of a test case for for Guatemalan justice system, and and unfortunately they failed. Uh, the judge, uh, the three judge panel, let them off, um, and this was a huge blow uh, for for the country, for the morale of the country, for for the d- judicial institution. Th- those kind of cases, uh, a case that. A you know a Costa Rican um, the the person who's head of he's head of a, a UN body that's helping out the the justice system there you know he said that this was an open and shut case you know this was a case that would have been easily prosecuted anywhere else and yet these guys are walking free you know these are the things that are that are really that that really push people to say, okay, this is, this is a failed state. You know, this is moving towards a failed state. It's these type of cases. Would you call Guatemala a failed state or Honduras a failed state? Uh, I'm not a big fan of, of failed state language. I think that there are degrees of failed state. I think there should be some kind of scale, if you will. It's not, um, you know, it's not Somalia, um, you know, it, things still work. The bus system still works. The kids still go to school. You know, you can still go to the hospital and get attention. You know, it's not it's not collapsing in front of your eyes, so to say. So it's not a failed state in that sense. But is it is it a, a penetrated and weak and and vulnerable and uh, an incredibly in some instances incredibly dangerous state? Yes, absolutely. I'm glad you brought up the Portillo case. That case is not over yet. Uh, there's been movement for him to be extradited to the United States to uh, follow up on these particular charges and has become a political football in uh, Guatemala. I'm not sure if it's an American football or a Central American football. But but what's your take on the on where that case is now? That case is going to uh, continue to be a bellwether. Um, and uh, I think that in the end... Um, Portillo will end up in the United States facing facing trial. I think that that, that will happen. Um, but you can still look at that as a failure. You can still look at that and say, Guatemala really had the chance. Uh, they really had a chance to send a message to a lot of different people who are in organized crime, who are very corrupt politicians, and they didn't. And that's sad. I'd be remiss if I didn't give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about your website, Inside Crime dot org. Um, you're doing investigative work 
on Colombia, on Central America, on Mexico now? They're on the site. Anything that we should be looking for? What we do all day, all week, all month is we monitor, analyze, and investigate these uh, these cases in Latin America and the Caribbean. So, you know, what we're trying to do is get one, at least one step below the surface of what you see, what you see in the news media. You know, it's not just four bodies here or, you know, five bodies there. What does it all mean? And, and connect all these different pieces and make it understandable. You know, give it, give it some context. Stephen Dudley, the director of InsightCrime.org, joining us today on Latin Pulse. We hope you come back and talk to us about the drug war again some other day. Thanks for having me. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook, or you can write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's Latin Pulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thank you for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For associate producer Vanessa Jesus Gonzati and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012, Las Rocas Productions.